If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Jonah chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, you may borrow one of ours uh, from one of the chairs uh, in front of you, and you will find our text on page 774. We are making our way through the book of Jonah, and for those of you that have been here, you will know, for those of you that haven't been here, uh, let me uh, explain that Jonah was one of God's prophets who received a calling, which we will look at more in a few minutes, and he refused that calling. He refused to obey, and he found himself running from God, and because of him being uh, disobedient, because of his run from God, he found himself... um, Uh, in a a ship at sea being thrashed by a storm that God himself had sent and being thrown overboard uh, on his way to death and being rescued by God by a great fish. And it's at this point as we think not only where we're at in uh, the immediate story of Jonah but when we think about the bigger picture of Jonah's life about uh, who he is and, and what uh, where he has come from, what he is called to do, we see Jonah has already been the recipient of God's grace. He was born in Israelites. That means he was born into the covenant people of God, part of the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, graciously taught the law of God, experiencing life and ministry under the sacrifices and the temple of God. There was a closeness to the Almighty that was grace in his life that he had experienced that the nations had not experienced. More than that, though, Jonah personally had been the recipient of saving grace, having entered into a relationship with God through faith. He believed the law and its truth about what it taught about God and what he wanted for his people. He sought to keep the covenant, and he trusted in the efficacy of the sacrifices for his sins when he failed to live in obedience to the covenant. Yet Jonah, like all of God's people, as unthinkable as it sounds, became bored with grace. He became bored with grace. The joy of knowing God, the delight of being in relationship with Him, having received the saving grace, though once burning fervently in His heart, had cooled into a complacent sense of entitlement. What was once a sense of marveling at being one of God's people was reduced to a carelessness and an ease of life that made it possible for Him to ignore, even to forget God's grace. And the result was a disobedient prophet. Now even from the outset here, we cannot help but ask, is that how we live? Do we live in such a way that we have become bored with grace? What would that look like? Well, ask yourself this, do we casually walk through the day with hardly a thought of God or the tremendous mercy that that called us and brought us into being one of His people? Do we see his book lying there on the table or on the shelf or in the back of the car or in our nightstand, nicely bound in leather with gilded edges, and do we, do we not pick it up, but just think, yeah, maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow. 
Do we wake up in the morning thinking of our own plans for the day? Wondering about what we're going to do and where we're going to go and this, that, and the other as we grab our coffee and our breakfast without ever bothering to stop and acknowledge that the day has been given to us by a king who not only loves us and has shown us grace but did so to the point of dying for our sins and who deserves more acknowledgement than 30 seconds of thanks for the food we're about to shovel into our mouth each day. Do we avoid this, just the really bad sins more out of habit than anything else? Or are we concerned for an ever-deepening relationship with God that is reflected in our desire to obey Him and to serve Him in all things, even to the degree that we are willing to let go of our previous life, to let go of our desires and our wishes and our mighty plans that we think that we have crafted, to die to those to those things that we find so entertaining and pleasing, and yet it is only to the world which is perishing that they are really satisfying and are in reality keeping our sinful hearts happy and away from our Heavenly Father. Or do we live a life of unending joy before God and obedience to His calling despite the ongoing battle with sin and suffering and the things of this world? Ask yourself, have I become bored with grace? Have we lost sight of that miraculous power and love that brought us to God and gave us the, dre- the greatest treasure which we can never deserve, His own Son? Have we traded an eternal life for which we were made for a finite, soul-numbing existence that looks normal and satisfying only to the world around us? What if we are bored with grace? What if we find ourselves not living a life of joy and obedience with God in rapture with the mercy and the love and the grace that was shown to us? We're just on cruise control. What do we do? What do we do? Well, it's very much the passage that Pastor Joe just read. We seek more grace. We seek more grace. Grace, And in fact, this is what we see happening in the life of Jonah. He deserves judgment and death for his disobedience, which came from being bored with grace. And yet, rather than receiving those things, what did he receive? More grace. And his life was changed because of it. It was this renewed experience of grace that lifted Jonah out of his self-indulgent arrogance into once again marveling at the great and glorious God that he served. Let's look at this as we and think about this as we look to Jonah chapter 2 and think about our own need of a re- renewed experience of grace. Beginning at verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. Last week we looked at these very verses and we focused on seeing it through the lens of the last phrase, verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. And we looked at what the salvation of God is like, not just in Jonah's life, but the, sal- the physical salvation that came to Jonah that was an echo that points to an even greater salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning we want to look at this text again and this time we want to look at it not from the perspective of God and, and the salvation that he gives, but from the perspective of Jonah as one who has received more grace. What was his experience like? How did his understanding of God change in and through the salvation that he experienced? This morning our theme is this. What does it mean to be changed by grace? What does that look like practically? What should we expect? What can we hope for? When we encounter God's grace, from this text at least, three effects should be seen in our life. The first is this, grace produces a renewed sense of God. Grace produces a renewed sense of God. It's interesting how this chapter begins. We aren't told that Jonah prays to the Lord God, which we may see throughout the Old Testament. And we, instead, we read Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Yahweh, the Lord, is not merely a God. He's not even the God. He is His God. He is Jonah's God. More than that, though, when we look at the end of the passage in verses 8 through 9, notice what he says. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, surely before this, Jonah could have given the right answer, the orthodox answer to the question, from where does salvation come? He, he, he could have said, he could have said, look, don't, uh, don't go after false idols. Don't go after all these false gods. There's only one true God, the Lord. It's very likely he would have been trained under Elisha and Elijah. He would have, he would have known about the great battle between Baal and the Lord and how uh, Baal didn't show up. He didn't show up for the fight. He didn't even, he didn't even get in a sucker punch. He, he was non-existent. But the Lord showed up and won the battle, demonstrating, demonstrating there's only one true God. He would have known to say, well, of course, salvation belongs to the Lord. But now something is different. He doesn't just intellectually know the answer. He himself has experienced the answer. He has experienced the salvation of the Lord. He was at the point of death and God rescued him. He says, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. I I said, I am driven away from your sight. The water closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Now put yourself in Jonah's shoes. Can you think of a worse situation to be in? Not just that you're facing death, but you're doing so because you are disobedient to God. You have brought it upon yourself. I can't think of a more terrifying place to be in. It's one thing if if someone broke into the house and I was defending my family or something, but no, no, I was just a rebel. I was selfish. I was arrogant, and now I'm about to die for it. Jonah felt his life ebbing away, but God saved him. Verse 6, you brought up my life from the pit. Suddenly, 
through his prayer we see there is now new meaning to what he had previously confessed. He doesn't just believe it. He knows experientially salvation belongs to the Lord. What he has confessed, he now seen firsthand. Remember, on the boat, what did he see? He saw all of these pagan sailors pulling out their trinkets, pulling out their false gods, finding anything, anything and everything they possibly could to offer a sacrifice. And what happened? There wasn't one drop less rain. There was more rain. The storm intensified. There is vain hope in the gods of our own making. And yet he knows there is the, the promise of steadfast love from the one true God. Jonah was thrown overboard and called out to this God and he was saved. His experience of grace reminded him of the one true God. Jonah's knowledge of who God is is now increased and made all the more real to him. It reminds me, uh, particularly because uh, one of my kids is constantly carrying around a book from the Narnia trilogy. I think by the time he graduates high school, he'll probably have read all of them about a hundred times. Uh, and I don't begrudge that. They're great books. But, but so I constantly am seeing this, so I'm constantly thinking about these books. And, and as I was thinking about this new sense of God, I couldn't help but think of the second book when uh, the Pevensey kids are brought back in the Narnia to help Prince Caspian. And, and for page after page, chapter after there's no Aslan. There's no Lion King of Narnia that they all love and desire to see. And suddenly he shows up and Lucy is just enthralled. And, and, and she's like, oh, Aslan, Aslan. And you cannot help but think of her embracing him, putting her hands up into his mane and kissing him. But then she steps back and she says, you've gotten bigger. And he says, no, you've gotten older. And she says, are you sure you haven't gotten older? Because when I get older, I get bigger. Maybe, maybe you got older and you got bigger. He says, no, no, no. The older you get, the bigger I get. Now, what in the world is Louis? What's he talking about? I mean, when, I'm, when I was little, I would go places. I would do things. I would uh, play with toys, and they seemed big to me. And then I get older, and I go back, and I'm thinking, why does everything look so small? You know, you get on the school bus again, and you're like, man, folding the legs up and trying to sit in that seat and you're thinking, you know, bouncing are all over the place. Why is everything so small? And yet what Lewis is saying is this, it doesn't work spiritually the same way it works physically. God is not changing, but your awareness of Him is changing. The more you grow spiritually, the more you come to know God, you get a bigger sense of who He is. You come to know Him differently, Him and His power and His salvation. Your sense of God is renewed and increased. So for example, but when, you're, when you're just becoming a Christian, you're taking baby steps in faith and, and, a, and a small problem comes up and you're thinking, God, I want to trust you, but I'm just not sure. And you give it up to God in prayer and He answers. And he brings you through and suddenly now the next time when something big happens, you can look back and say, well, he handled the small things. He can surely handle the big things. Perhaps even as you, you come to faith, you're reading parts of the Bible and you're hearing ministers and teachers, teach on things, you're just thinking, how can that be true? You know, maybe it's the struggle of, of, of understanding an eternal hell or God's sovereignty over all things. And you're just going to scratch your head saying, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And yet, as, as the Christian life goes on and you experience more and more of God's grace and you understand more and more from His Word, suddenly who the reality of God is, it gets bigger for you. And so eventually you're able to stand back and, and you see things and you still don't understand it, but you're able to stand back and say, and yet surely how can it be wrong? 
Like Paul, you say, how can I, the creation, call back to the creator and say, you've got it wrong? I can't. I just humbly bow and worship and say, you're, you're so much bigger than me. I can't understand it, but I trust you because I've experienced your grace. The more we experience God's grace, the greater the sense of God we will have. The more real He will become to us. You won't just know about Him, you will know Him. Why is that important? It's important because of this. Because of our own even sinful hearts as God's people. When the world puts things before us, when our own sinful hearts craves things for us, they are live and vibrant and in technicolor and we reach out and grab anything that we are tempted with. And we can't do that with God. He is near to us, but we can't see Him except with the eyes of faith. And so what do we do? We're going to more quickly go for the sin. There's an immediate sense of fulfillment. There's an immediate sense of of happiness, there's immediate sense of satisfaction, and yet it ultimately turns sour in our gut and makes us sick. But it was so there, it was right there, it was big and vibrant and bold and, you know, uh, you know just as seen on TV, and we thought, yeah, i got to have that thing. i got to have that sin. And so what do we need to do but, but take God and the reality of who He is and we need to, to switch on the high death, as it were, We need to allow God to be big and bold and in color and in high definition. And the reality of His glory needs to become so all-pervasive in our life that suddenly sin looks like it's coming at us in black and white. And we say, why would I ever want that when I've got this God in my life? The only way that's going to happen is when again and again and again the reality of His grace is made clear in your life. Then your understanding of God will be changed and your sense of Him will become more real. More than that, as we experience God's grace, it produces a deeper thankfulness towards God within us. Grace produces a deeper thankfulness towards God. We began by detailing some of the things Jonah would have experienced that would have, should have at least made him thankful to God, namely being a part of the covenant people of Israel, the recipients of God's promises, living under the grace of God just revealing himself to Jonah. But it wasn't until all that was almost taken away from him that he began to realize just how blessed he really was. Not just for the position of grace in which he found himself, child of Israel, prophet of God, but blessed just to have his life. Notice what he says in verses 7 and 9. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Is it possible? Is it possible that Jonah used to offer sacrifices commanded by the law for his sin in faith but not in gratitude? Would it be possible that he believed he was a sinner and he believed that when the sacrifice was offered, atonement was made, he could go away clean in the eyes of God and yet he wasn't grateful for that grace? Is it possible that he had received the salvation of God and even as he was reminded of it, as he handed over the dove or he handed over the bowl of grain or he handed over the land of the priest that would be sacrificed on his behalf, that his heart was cold and unmoved. And rather than being grateful for the grace, he expected it. 
and he presumed on God. I say, yeah, it's possible. It's absolutely possible. Because I see Christians living that way all the time. They say, well, well how do you know that? Well, if you don't mind me stepping on your toes a little bit, I've seen you sing. I've watched you sing. I've sat in the back. I've sat in the front. I've sat in the sides. I've sat up here. And not all the time and not in every way. And I know some people emote differently. But there are times when many of you are just going through the motions. You're singing about God who took on flesh and was beaten to a pulp and shrung up on a Roman cross and died for you under the wrath of God. And you look like you'd rather be picking your nose in front of a television. What does that mean? It means you become bored with grace. I mean, I know we're Baptists, but my goodness, shed a tear, raise your voice, raise a hand, something. you got to let a smile crack across your face. I mean, I mean, do you understand that it is an encouragement to those around you by how you praise, if nothing by the fact that God deserves it? We have allowed ourselves to become bored and complacent and presumptive that, that God has saved us. And rather than being crushed and humbled by the fact that He would do that for us, for us, for me, how could He do that? It's only by grace. It's only by grace. What does Jonah say? I was dying. I was slipping away. And I shot my prayer like an arrow toward the temple of God in heaven. I came to him. He heard it. And he answered it. He answered my prayer. And he brought my life up from the pit. Therefore, with the voice of thanksgiving, will I sacrifice to you. Now understand, he's still in the fish. He's still in the fish. And he says, one day I'm going to sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. He knows he wasn't saved from the sea to die in the fish. One day he's going to get back to Israel. And when he does, his life is going to be different. When he stands in front of the priest, in front of the temple now, and he hands over the offering, it's not going to be, yeah, yeah, let's get this over with so I can be clean before God. It's going to be trembling humbly at the mercy and grace of God. When he knows he deserves to be struck down for his sin and yet instead he finds life and forgiveness and acceptance. I will come and I will offer my sacrifice with the voice of thanksgiving. Why? Because he had experienced God's grace. It came to him in an unexpected way, in a fresh way, in a dramatic way, and suddenly his perspective had changed. His heart and attitude had changed. Now understand, thankfulness is more than just saying thank you. You can say thank you and you can be thankful. But you can say thank you. I can say thank you to I'm blue in the face and not mean it. Nothing may be going on in here. just may be coming out here. I can get, a, I can get a, a new book or maybe a, a new to me but very old book. And I can, be, I can say, well, thank you. And immediately I turn around and say, na, 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 look what I got. It's better than your thing. Is that, is that gratefulness? Is that thankfulness? No. It, it may enjoy the gift, but that's not really thankfulness. Thankfulness at, at, at its most crucial point looks to the giver with gratitude. Pastor John Piper explains this explains it in this way, the relationship between grace and gratitude. He says this, listen closely. Grace begins 
when one person is full and the other person is empty. One person is a have and the other is a have not. One is rich and the other is poor. Then grace comes into action as the emptiness of the one is filled up by the fullness of the other. What we do not have is supplied by what He has. Our poverty is replaced by His wealth. And all that, not because we deserve it, but because Jesus is gracious. His riches are free. Therefore, gratitude wells up in the hearts of those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. This gratitude to Christ is more than saying thank you or trying to return some service. It is more than being glad you are free from condemnation. It is being glad toward Jesus for the riches of salvation and the way He made it ours. That's what's going on in Jonah's head. He says, I am thankful to God for God and for what He has given me. Why is thankfulness so important? It's important for this reason. It shows you're humble and God is great. You're humble and God is great. True thankfulness shows you can't do it by yourself and you know you can't do it by yourself and you ask for help. You know, it's one thing for God and His angels to know all your weaknesses. It's another thing for you to know them and to acknowledge them before others, even God Himself. What happens when you know your weaknesses? You're humbled and you call out to God for help. And what happens when you call out to God for help? He answers you. And what does that mean? It means that it shows He is gracious and glorious. He is the God that He says that He is. Pray for everything. Why? Because when God answers, you can lift Him up and exalt Him and say, this came from the hand of God. He is gracious and glorious. And you know what? Here's the thing. He may still answer those requests even when you've not prayed for them. That's real grace. But you know what? You're not thankful to Him when it happens. You just think, well, that's life. And you walk on. But if you're humbly on your knees, on your face saying, God, I am so weak and I am so impoverished. I need you in my life. Not just physically, but spiritually. And then God shows up and does something for you. Guess what? Then He gets the glory for you. If you are genuinely thankful, it shows you have genuinely, genuinely understood grace. What's the last thing? The last thing is this. Grace produces a renewed obedience to God. It gives you a new sense of God. Allows you to be thankful. And grace produces a renewed obedience to God. Do you remember how the story began? Some of you are probably tired of hearing it by now. Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Whatever we call this, sin, rebellion, moxie, it is flat-out disobedience. Flat-out disobedience. He has given a direct command, not just go to the nations and tell them about me. Go to Nineveh. And call out against their sin, which is evil in my sight. And what does he do? He goes the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. It could not be any more disobedient. Then he experiences the grace of the fish. And he's a different man. In verse 9, he says, What I have vowed, I will pay. Now, what vow is he talking about? Well, something gets the sacrifices he just mentioned that he's going to, to, to give with thanksgiving. And that could certainly be it. I think that's a valid option. But I suspect it's something more than that. I suspect it goes back to the vows that he took when God called him to be a prophet for himself. 
he was called to speak faithfully the word of the Lord to the Lord's people for their good. And he has failed to do that. And now he remembers the vow that he promised to make, the vow that he promised to give and to keep. Sinclair Ferguson wonders if it sounded something like the words of the hymn writer Francis Havergal. Lord, speak to me that I may speak in living echoes of your tone as you have sought to let me seek your erring children lost and lone. O oh, strengthen me that while I stand firm on the rock and strong in thee, I may strength out a loving hand to wrestlers with the troubled sea. O oh, use me, Lord, use even me just as you will and when and where until your blessed face we see, your rest, your joy, your glory share. Here is a man, Jonah, who made... Certainly a similar vow, dedicating his life to serving God and yet who had refused to serve. He broke in the most grievous and arrogant and obvious way his vow, his promise to serve. And yet now because he has experienced God's grace, he's moved from being disobedient to obedient. Of being unresponsive and uncooperative to the commands of God to being cooperative, even joyful to complete the commands of God. And again, we have to just stop and say, where are we today? How much are we like Jonah before the fish or after the fish? Do we disregard the voice of God through His Word, instructing us, commanding us, prompting us to obey? Have we forgotten our vows as a Christian? He said, I didn't take any vows when I became a Christian. Implicitly, you did. Because the call of Christ included an implicit vow. Luke 9 Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, that is to say, follow him as his disciple, trust him for salvation, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Why, Jesus? Why is that the call? For whoever would save his life, that is, whoever would seek to preserve what he wants, what he desires, what he loves, whoever would seek to save his life will lose it. That is, lose it forever in the fires of hell. You try and hold on to your pride. You try and hold on to your ego. You want to do things your way. You want to be your own man and your own God. You will lose your life. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Whoever dies to himself, just as I died for them, whoever takes up his own cross and says, I am following after Christ and will live in obedience to Him, guess what? You will have life. Christ will give you His life spiritually so that you might be right before God. Jesus ends with this bit of logic and reasoning. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You can think of a man who has gained the whole world. He sits at the top of a tower that he's built and plastered his name on, does not answer to anybody, but everybody seems to answer to him. And yet, what does that matter if he dies apart from God and goes to eternal condemnation and hell? That's Jesus' argument. And yet, what if you give up going your own way in this life, having the world. How, can, can you fathom what you gain by knowing and being with God and being loved by Him, not just now but for all eternity? Sometimes I wonder, are we still trying to gain the whole world? We've confessed Christ, but somewhere along the way, 
because of success, because of some relationship, or perhaps just sheer laziness? Have we thrown the cross off to our shoulder, off to the side of the road, and decided to go our own way? Perhaps even trying to pick up our own dead life and trying to live for it again. I can't help but wonder if perhaps we've slowed down on what used to be a run to follow after Christ, and now we're simply walking. Perhaps we've even sat down on the dirty road, put off with a whole die-to-yourself message. I was listening to Pastor Alistair Begg give a sermon this week, and he told the story of a businessman from Yorkshire, England. He was a well-to-do man, much like the man that we just mentioned a few moments ago. No one told him what to do, but he told everybody what to do. He was master of his own fate, captain of his own life, very famous and prominent businessman, and then someone, someone shared the gospel with him. That Christ came in obedience to His Father and in love for sinners to seek and save the lost. Those that were rebelling, running away from God like Jonah, He came to bear their wrath, the judgment of God on their behalf as their substitute on the cross that they might be forgiven and have life with God. Someone shared to Him the message of the cross and the message of the resurrection that Christ didn't stay dead after the cross but was raised up to be King and Lord over all things. And they put the question to him, will you use, lose your life for his sake or will you keep your life and lose your soul? He was gloriously slay, saved and he was being prepped for baptism. And they told him in the preparation discussion, you need to come about 45 minutes early before the service begins and we'll go through what the minister is going to do and we'll help you get changed into baptismal robes. And he, they started to describe and the guy said, no, forget it. I'm not doing the robes. They said, what do you mean? He says, I'm wearing my three-piece suit down in the water. I said, no, 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 you can't do that. It's going to be ruined. It'll be destroyed. It'll, it'll be completely ruined down in the baptistry. And he says, that's the point. That's the point. The three-piece suit represented everything that he was in his own self, in his own life. He represented everything that he had made for himself apart from God. And he said, if this is real, then I am showing the world I am dying to that person in these waters. I am giving up my life because someone else gave up their life for mine and his is far better. The eternal life that Christ offers is far better even than the life that I have made for myself in this world. And that's exactly what he did. Wouldn't you have, wouldn't you have loved to have seen that? A man in this three-piece suit, probably worth more than most of us make in, in, a, in a month or two, going down into the water, coming back up, suit coming off and being thrown in the trash. He has taken up his cross and he is following his Savior King, losing his life that he might find it. Why? Because he had experienced the grace of God, the salvation of his soul. God said, you deserve hell and I'll give you heaven. You deserve judgment and I'll give you forgiveness. You deserve death and I'll give you life if you simply look to my son and trust in him. This morning we have seen what it means to have a new experience of God's grace, to be changed by grace. Many of you here will have already experienced God's grace and salvation. You have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. But some of you have grown bored with grace. You know you're bored with it, and you know you need to see it again. You need to have a fresh taste of God's grace that you might be awoken from your spiritual lethargy 
and again experience the reality that you are alive in Christ. But I know the question you're probably asking is, how is it going to happen? The answer is simple. Ask for it. Seek for it. Go to God and say, I don't want to live this way anymore. I don't want to be bored with grace. I don't want to live for myself. I don't want to be on cruise control. Give me more grace. Isn't that what Jesus offered to His people? Isn't that what His brother James offered as well? Ask. Jesus said, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? But He gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. What more precious promise could there possibly be in all the Bible? Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Whether you are wanting to receive Jesus as Savior for the first time, wanting to experience God's grace and to taste and see that He is good, to see what your life could be in the light of His love and forgiveness and not a life of your own doing, ask God and He will give you that salvation. Or if you've already tasted And like Jonah, you became bored and you decided to go your own way. Again, ask God for more grace. Ask Him to open your eyes, to open your heart, and He will answer you. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Ask for grace. He will give it and you will be changed. Father, we are thankful for all that you have done for us even for the life and breath that you have given us this day, but we are especially thankful for the grace you have given to us. Oh God, it would take so long to go through all the ways you have given us what we don't deserve, but we are most thankful for what you have given us in Christ. God, we pray that you would change our hearts as we experience afresh your loving, sovereign grace. God, this is our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.